I, I have to say, before, even before we went into the book of Acts, I did consider uh, doing the gospel of Mark. I, I considered doing a gospel, and, and the reason why I feel it's important that we've landed here on a gospel is because I think that at this time in history and in the life of the church, I really think it is essential that we have a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and what it meant and means to be his followers. You know, there is so much uh, confusion about Jesus and about the word of God. Of course, that confusion exists out there in the culture in general. But you know, there's a ton of confusion in the church as well. And so there's, there's nothing that's going to help clear the confusion up any better than to just go right back to the source, to go right back to the, to the very text itself. And we are going to just look at this gospel and we're going to uh, again, we're going to just make sure we know who Jesus is, we know what he did, and what it means to be his follower in our day and age. Now, but we're doing specifically the Gospel of Mark. Why Mark versus the other uh, three possibilities? Of course, we have Matthew, we have Luke, and we have John. And they're all of course, similar, and the, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are, are called the synoptic Gospels. And the reason they're called the synoptics is because uh, th that word means to kind of see through the same lens. So, you know, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in one sense, you kind of feel like, wow, this is, this is really similar. But, you know, the, the longer you read those and the more you look closely at them, you realize that, yeah, there certainly are similarities, but there are some real differences as well. And then John, in, in many ways, is entirely different. But each of the gospel writers had a purpose, and it seems that as you look at Mark, Mark really, more than anything, wanted to focus in on what Jesus did. And, and that's why I think Mark is a good gospel for us to go through. We, we want to look at, um, of course, there's the, you know, the teachings of Jesus. Some of them are in here, uh, not like you would find in Matthew or Luke. But, but we really want to focus in on what Jesus did. I like the way J.C. Ryle, uh, the Bishop of Liverpool from a long time ago, I, I like the way he described Mark as compared to the other gospel accounts. He said this. He said, Mark is in some respects unlike the other three gospels. It tells us nothing about the birth and early life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It contains comparatively few of his sayings and discourses. Of all the four inspired histories of our Lord's earthly ministry, this is by far the shortest. It is a gospel singularly full of precious facts about the Lord Jesus, narrated in a simple, terse, pithy, and condensed style. If it tells us few of our Lord's sayings, it is eminently rich in its catalog of his doings. I like that. So it's eminently rich in, in the catalog of, of his doings. So Mark doesn't tell us as, you know, as much about the sayings of Jesus as the others uh, do, but he, he focuses in on uh, what Jesus did. A more current voice, uh, Tim Keller, he put it like this, Jesus is seen as a man of action, moving quickly and decisively from uh, event to event. In Mark, we mainly see Jesus doing. And so that's what has kind of pushed me 
toward Mark because Jesus went about, as Peter would say at a certain point, Jesus went about doing good and he added in healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And, and I hope that as we study the life of Jesus, that that's going to inspire us in our time to be like Jesus in that sense, to, to go about because we are his servants and, and to seek to do the kinds of things that he did. So that's our uh, objective here in studying Mark. That's a little introduction to how we got to Mark. But today I want to look at three things. We're going to look at the author and the audience. And then I want to look at the 15 verses that we read. I'm just going to give kind of a light exposition of those 15 verses. And then the final thing that we want to look at is the message that Mark is communicating in these opening verses. These 15 verses are kind of like the introduction to uh, the gospel. So we want to look at the message of the introduction, which is basically the gospel, the Messiah, and the kingdom. So first of all, let's talk just for a moment about the author. The author is Mark, as we see, but we need to understand that this is the person known as John Mark. So his Hebrew name is John, his uh, Roman name is Mark, and any of you that went through the Acts study with us, you're familiar with that, if you remember, because John Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. He was the traveling companion of Barnabas. He was the one um, who went out with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. He left prematurely. Later, when they were going to go out for the second missionary journey, Uh, Barnabas wanted to take Mark. Paul said, we're not taking him. They got in a disagreement, and maybe you remember the story there. They actually separated ways over this um, young guy, John Mark. So he, but he was a companion of Paul, and he was also a companion of Peter, and Peter refers to Mark in uh, the final chapter of his first epistle. He refers to Mark as his son in the faith. So that's a little bit about uh, John Mark. Mark is almost certainly the young man who flees naked at the arrest of Jesus. Now, in this gospel, it's the only gospel that records this in chapter 14, I think it's verse 51. Uh, there's a story of Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and there's a young man who's he's there, he's wearing just a linen cloth. Uh, they, they try, the, the soldiers try to grab him, he flees and leaves behind the linen cloth, and it says that he fled naked. And most people believe that this is a personal reference uh, that Mark is giving to himself. So think about that. So he's a young boy, you know, maybe, I don't know, in his teens, early teens or something, but he's there in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested. So we see that he's got this this connection to Barnabas as his nephew, this connection to Paul in ministry, obviously this close connection to Peter who refers to him as his son in the faith. Now, Mark is said by uh, a man named Papias. Papias was a, a church leader, um, kind of post-apostolic. His, his life overlapped with the Apostle John. It's said that he was associated with the Apostle John Uh, But Papias said about Mark that he was Peter's interpreter, meaning Mark's gospel is actually Peter's account of the ministry of Jesus. 
So, I mean, you would kind of wonder, wouldn't you, um, well, why didn't Peter write a gospel? Matthew wrote a gospel. John wrote a gospel. Uh, well, you know, why wouldn't Peter write a gospel? We know Peter could write because he wrote two letters. And you would think because he was so obviously, you know, deeply involved in the life and ministry of Jesus, why wouldn't he do it? Well, it seems that he actually did do it, but he did it through Mark. So Mark is the interpreter of Peter. So I think we can understand that Mark's gospel is, is probably really uh, Peter's gospel. There's, there's more, uh, proportionately, there's, uh, there's more references to Peter in Mark than in the other gospels. And so that probably is the case. Now, just a quick word on the audience. Uh, all of the different gospel writers had a different target audience that they wrote to. Of course, um, it, it wasn't exclusively that. It was broad enough to appeal uh, beyond their target audience. But if you look at Matthew's gospel, it's clear that Matthew is writing to Jews. He quotes the Old Testament more frequently than anyone. He makes sure that they understand that things that are happening in the life of Jesus are, are connected back to Old Testament prophecies. And, you know, for Matthew, everything is, is very much set in a Jewish context. That was his target audience. Um, Luke seems to have targeted more of a Greek audience. Luke was a Greek, and he was a physician. So he presents Jesus kind of as the, the perfect man. And uh, Greek, the Greeks were interested in the, the perfect man. Uh, John, we know that John's focus and emphasis was to, to make sure we understood that Jesus was divine, that he was the word who was in the beginning with God and was God who became flesh. Mark, it seems like Mark, um, and maybe Peter, you know, through Mark, was, was targeting, just generally speaking, a Gentile audience. And the reason why we know that that was the case is because uh, Mark recognizes that the people he's writing to don't know much about Jewish customs and traditions. So he always explains them. He writes them, he tells what was happening, but then he kind of gives an explanation so the non-Jewish writer would understand the background to the comments that he made. So Mark's gospel uh, was, you know, generally to a Gentile audience. So, like I said, I mean, these are, you know, probably their target audiences, but obviously uh, everything uh, it extends out and becomes much broader. And so whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we today are all going to, you know, benefit from their writing. So that's the um, background with Mark and the audience, but now let's actually just look at the 15 verses that we read together today. Let's just quickly walk through the text. And so verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now Mark is similar right here to John because John's gospel is, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God, right? Now, especially at that time, Anybody who read in the beginning would immediately think of another place where you would read in the beginning, and that's the very first words of the Bible itself. Way back in the book of Genesis, that's how it began, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
So when John writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was gone, he is wanting people to understand that what I'm about to tell you right now is connected all the way back to the very beginning. Now, Mark is essentially doing the same thing. Mark wants everybody to understand that this gospel is related all the way back to the beginning of time. This gospel is the very thing that the God who created everything in the beginning, it's the thing that he promised to send, uh, well, the Savior himself, he promised to send the Savior into the world. So he starts with the word, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. So Mark wants his readers to know that Jesus comes in fulfillment of the prophets. Now again, God, it's important for us to remember this too. Um, Jesus didn't just appear in history as, well, you know, here's this person, Jesus. Yeah, he was born in this place. And, you know, he said he was the son of God. So we thought that he probably was. And, and, and then we worshiped him. That's not how it happened. Jesus came in fulfillment of prophecy. There were many, many, many prophecies that were already written down before Jesus was ever born, hundreds of years before he ever came, telling about his coming, the time he would come into the world, the circumstances under which he would come, the place of his birth, uh, things about his family, all different kinds of things were written about him. And Mark wants us to understand that this coming of Jesus was a fulfillment of those prophecies. So he quotes uh, from two prophets here. He quotes from Malachi and from Isaiah, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi 3.1 in our Bibles. And then Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then verse four, John came baptizing in the wilderness. So Mark takes us first to John the Baptist, who was prophesied to come as the forerunner of the Savior. So there's a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what's he crying? Prepare the way of the Lord. The prophet said that that would happen. Now think about this. 400 years. That is such a long time. There's been 400 years of basically dead silence from heaven. There's been no prophetic voice. Malachi was the last prophet to speak. And since then, although the people had the scriptures, there was, there was, no, there was no prophetic voice after literally centuries of God consistently raising up and sending prophets to the nation, suddenly there's uh, a silence, and that silence is not ended for 400 years, and it is finally broken with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist. So, man, just, you know, think about that, that such a long period of time. And the people during that time, during that, what we call the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that 400 years, things for the Jews went from bad to worse. They came back from the Babylonian captivity. That's the end, at the end of the Old Testament, that's what's happening. They come back from the Babylonian captivity, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Zechariah. They rebuild the temple. They reestablish you know, Jewish life after the captivity. 
But then things just go from bad to worse. The, uh, the Greek empire comes to power and they just trample uh, the Israel, Jerusalem, and they, they come under one oppressive regime after another. The priesthood becomes more and more corrupt. And so by the time you get to where we are in the account here, uh, things are so dark and the people are so burdened with the oppression of Rome and they're so desperately longing for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And I would imagine that many of them thought that, you know, maybe it's never going to happen. But then suddenly there's a voice that begins to cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so John the Baptist comes onto the scene and he is preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locust and wild honey and he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark just gives us a, a brief overview of the, the ministry of John the Baptist. Now notice how he describes John. He um, comes out of the wilderness. He lives on a diet of locust which people do eat locust even still today, and wild honey. And um, he's dressed in this, this garment, this, this camel's hair garment. And, you know, he's a wild wilderness type of a guy. He's very similar in description to the ancient prophet Elijah. And the interesting thing is at the very end of Malachi's prophecy, Malachi's prophecy says this, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the coming of the great and the awesome day of the Lord. And so John, although he's not Elijah, he's actually a type of Elijah. And he comes and he's calling the people uh, to be baptized for the a baptism of repentance for the remission of their sins. Now, again, this was unusual. Um, Jews were not baptized uh, for the remission of sins. Jews didn't see themselves as needing that sort of thing. They, they would wash themselves to cleanse themselves uh, in a you know, purification type of a rite. But the fact that they would be called to, to be immersed, which would show repentance for the forgiveness of sins, that was something Gentiles would do, but the Jews would not think of themselves as needing to do this. But the multitudes of people who are desperate for God to do something, they're flocking out to John. But we know from the other gospels that the religious leaders, they're coming out to John and they're asking him, who gave you the right to do this? Who do you think you are? We didn't commission you. We didn't tell you you could do this. Who are you? Are you the Messiah? John said, no, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Messiah. And so that's what's happening here now. John says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he, this one that's coming, the one that I'm 
preparing the way for. Uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days, verse nine, that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so the baptism of Jesus. Now, John, we, you know, when you put all of the other gospels together, you, you learn all of these additional things. John the Baptist doesn't know. He knows he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He doesn't know who the Messiah is. But God had told him this. The one upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John, as he's there baptizing, Jesus comes to be baptized. Now, Jesus and John were distant relatives. But sometimes I've heard preachers give the impression that, you know, because we use the term they were cousins, cousins is probably too close of a connection. They were further distance than that. Some people give the impression that um, they hung out together. They kind of knew what was going on. Jesus comes down to the river and John says, hey, wow, it's my cousin, you know, come on down to get baptized. That's great. Um, just like the plan, <laughs> just, just like it was planned. No, that's not the way it happened. <clears throat> they probably didn't have really any association with each other. They were, they were uh, geographically at a distance from one another. The parents of John the Baptist were very old. John the Baptist went out into the wilderness as a young person, we're told. Jesus lived in Nazareth. He pretty much stayed there. John doesn't know who the Messiah is, but here's what happens. Jesus comes, he's baptized, and the Spirit descended upon him. It wasn't just, let me just say this. It wasn't a dove that descended upon Jesus. The Spirit, somehow John could see that the Spirit was descending upon Jesus like a dove, like a dove would, would alight on something, you know, we, we, I just want to say that because sometimes we get superstitious about like the symbol of a dove. You know, years ago, we, we, for a long time, we had a dove as a, as a symbol here. And then when we didn't have the dove, people thought, oh no, the Holy Spirit's left the church. They took the dove down and uh, that's a sign right there. No, there was never a dove in the first place. It was, it was the Spirit descending like a dove would descend. So John sees this somehow. John's able to see this. And then John knows this is the one. This is the Messiah. And so Jesus is baptized by John. And he is at that time also uh, baptized with the Spirit. And then the heavenly voice speaks. Verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast. And the angels ministered to him. Now, again, Mark is being very, very brief, obviously intentionally, because um, he, he wants to get to the things that he wants to emphasize. So, so these things that Matthew and later Luke went into great detail about, uh, Mark doesn't go into great detail. There's a scholarly debate as to who wrote the first gospel. Uh, some people used to say Matthew did. Now most scholars think Mark did. Uh, the fact of the matter is nobody really knows who wrote the first gospel, uh, and it doesn't, doesn't really matter. But Matthew gives us 
a lot more detail, as, as Luke does as well, about this temptation of Jesus. But let me just say something about this really quickly as well. Jesus, as the Savior of the world, he's coming into the world as the, Paul would describe him as the last Adam. So there's a picture here. The first Adam, what happens? The first Adam, he's tempted, he succumbs to the temptation, and he brings ruin upon the world. But remember, that temptation took place in a perfect environment. It took place in the Garden of Eden. But the serpent came there and tempted Adam. Now, Jesus, who is the last Adam, he is following in the footsteps of Adam, in a sense. From Adam to Christ, every single person who had ever come up against the devil was defeated. Every single person, bar none. Even, even all the great leaders of all of God's great servants throughout history, they all were defeated in one way or another by the devil. So now Jesus goes not to a garden, but he goes out into the wilderness. And this would be the wilderness of Judea. If you go to Israel today and you go along the, the western shore of the Dead Sea and all of those hills that you'll see there, if you're traveling south, all those hills, that's the, that's the wilderness of Judea. It is the most desolate, it's the most desolate place I've ever seen. It is unbelievable. It's just dirt. Hills, dirt, scorpions and snakes and, you know, wild animals, as it says here. That's the place where Jesus goes to have a head-on confrontation with the enemy of the human race and the enemy of God with Satan himself. So Jesus is, is tempted these 40 days, Mark tells us. He's there in the wilderness. He's with the wild beast. He is victorious in the temptation. So he's the only person to never be defeated by Satan. And in the end, the angels ministered to him. Now, verse 14 says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that brings us to our third point. I want to now, let's just look at the message. So like I said, this is Mark's introduction. These first 15 verses, Mark is kind of laying out. This is you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna lay it out for you. Here's the introductory portion. But there's a message here in these verses. And I want us to concentrate now on verse 1 and verse 15. So verse 1, in the beginning, or, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, therefore. So the first thing that Mark tells us is this is the beginning of the gospel. Now, most of you know this. I'll remind you, the word gospel means good news. This is the beginning of the good news. If you have an NIV translation, for example, it actually says the good news. That, that's the meaning of the word. So this is the beginning of the good news. So what is the good news? Well, the gospel in a nutshell is this. Listen, there, there's two sides to the gospel. Well, 
there's the backdrop for the gospel, and then there's the gospel. So the backdrop is, is dark. It's bleak. The, the good news is that despite this, this bleak situation, God has done something. So, but here it is. Um, the gospel is this. We are more sinful, wicked, broken, and powerless to change our state than we'd ever want to believe. That's the, that's the bad news. But that has to be understood and actually accepted before the gospel is a benefit to us. You see, if I, if I don't think that my state is beyond repair, then the gospel means nothing to me because I think I can fix it. I can sort it out or somebody else can sort it out for me. But the message that was brought to us through God's word and specifically by Jesus is that we are more sinful, wicked, broken, and powerless to change than we, than we could ever believe. We, we somehow are not uh, by ourselves able to believe where our state is as bad as it is. But it is that bad. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. We are simultaneously more loved, cherished, and longed for by God than we could ever imagine. So even though we are sinful, wicked, broken, God loves us. That's humanity. God loves this broken humanity. And because of God's love, he did something to remedy our problem. He sent, God the Father sent God the Son on a rescue mission to save us from our sin, to save us from the power of Satan, to save us from ourselves. And so this is the good news. And this is what uh, Jesus now begins to herald. And this is what Mark is going to communicate throughout the gospel, that Jesus is um, the one that God sent to fix our problems. And that is true for you as, a, as an individual person. And it's true for us collectively as a race of people. The, the answer to your problems and the answer to our collective problems is the same answer. It's Jesus. It, it's him coming and bringing the gospel to us. So that's the gospel. Secondly, Mark says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, let's break that down. Jesus the name of Jesus is not just a random name. You know, Joseph and Mary didn't have a child, see it was a boy, and say, what should we name him? Uh, you know, Joshua sounds good. I like Joshua. Let's name him Joshua. They didn't do that. What happened? Before he was ever conceived, actually, when Mary was being told by the angel Gabriel that she was going to miraculously conceive a child, he told her this, and you shall name him Jesus. And the, the angel that appeared to Joseph told Joseph the same thing. You shall name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus means the Lord or Yahweh is, I think, the best Hebrew way to uh, the way the Hebrew would have us pronounce it, Yahweh is salvation. That's what Jesus means. So this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Christ, 
Now, we talk about Jesus Christ all the time, right? Of course, as Christians, we do. But even non-Christians talk about Jesus Christ all the time. And uh, they use his name as, you know, an expletive in a sense. And, uh, but Christ means the anointed one. And the Hebrew equivalent would be Messiah. So this is the good news about Jesus Christ, about the Lord, our Savior, who is the anointed one, the Messiah. It, the, the, at the time of Jesus, and not just among the Jews, but kind of universally, at the time of Jesus, it's interesting, universally, there was a, a longing and an, and an expectation for a deliverer. You know, mankind has always lived with this sort of um, internal conviction that there's, there's going to be, uh, somebody's going to rescue us. Somebody's going to come and help us. Somebody's going to sort things out. And that's probably because that's the promise that God gave way back in the beginning. Remember, when God created the human race, he created us in a relationship with him. Something happened. That, that was broken. It was severed. But God said, I'm going to fix it. How is he going to fix it? He's going to send somebody to do it. So that would become the hope of the nations. That would become the hope of Israel, the hope of a Messiah, one who would be sent from God to right all wrongs and to bring everything back to the way God intended it to be. This one would bring about universal righteousness, peace, love, and joy. So that's what people then, especially Jewish people, that's what they were longing for. And that's what Mark is saying has happened. This is the good news. Jesus, the Lord, our Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one has come. And then Mark adds this one thing. He adds the son of God. The Son of God. Now, also, let's understand this. To the people at that time and place, to be the Son of God meant to be equal with God. Now, I say that because that's not necessarily the case in our experience, is it? I mean, sometimes people will even say something like this. Well, Jesus is only the Son of God. He's not really God. But you see, in, that, in those years, anybody who heard that in those days understood that this was a, a claim to divinity. You couldn't be the son of God and not be God. You have the very nature of God. And of course, the Jews did not believe that a man could be God. So when Jesus claimed to be the son of God, they tried to kill him. John's gospel tells us that there was a point where the religious leaders, they picked up stones to stone Jesus. And Jesus said, many good works I've shown you for my father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And they said, we're not stoning you for a good work. You're, we're stoning you because you, being a man, claim to be God. You keep making yourself equal with God. How was he doing that? By saying he was the son of God. So Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is... He's the Lord who is our salvation, literally the Lord who is our salvation. As the prophet Isaiah said, that the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. See, Yahweh himself would come. This was the thing that, that just in the end would blow everybody's minds and, and still in the future 
will blow everybody's minds. Because there's coming a day when Jesus, who's been long rejected by the nation of Israel, will come back, and guess what they're going to discover? They're going to discover that the God they thought they'd been worshiping all these centuries, it's Jesus. He's the one. He's the Lord. He's the Son of God. And so... This is, of course, what Christians have believed and proclaimed from the beginning. Now, let me emphasize this because, once again, today, you know, we live in a time when there is blatant hostility to uh, the claim that Jesus is God, the only God, that he's the only Savior, that he's the only way to, you know, be forgiven or get right with God. There there's blatant hostility, and there's always been hostility toward that. And in different times and places, the, the hostility level has varied. But in our situation, although in the you know, many decades that I've been preaching, there, there's always been people who have disagreed with this, not to the level that we have today. I mean, today, you work for a corporation, listen, you say Jesus is the only way to God, Jesus is God himself, they'll fire you. Some people will try to sue you. Some people will come to the, the defense of, of other religions. It, it, it always amazes me how the atheists want to come to the defense of, of Islam. What's the point? Why? I mean, I thought there was no God. But, you know, but it's, it's basically everything is is directed against the claim of the divinity of Jesus because, of course, that puts Jesus in a category completely by himself. That's a category he has to be in. Whether you like it or not, that's where he is. And he's not going to change. This is, this is who he is. But Jesus Christ alone, he, in the truest sense, is unique. Jesus is unique. There you know, we use that word lightly in some ways. You know, we talk about various things that are unique that aren't necessarily that. But, but unique, according to the Oxford Dictionary, it, it means this, having no like, equal, or parallel. One of a kind. And that really can be said most uh, truly of Jesus. In the long history of the human race, Jesus Christ alone authentically fulfills that description of having no like, equal, or parallel. And that's because he's the Son of God. The historian Philip Schaff, he wrote this, and I read this many years ago, and it always just, I love it every time I read it. Let me read it to you. He said this, he said, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on manners human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. I agree. That is what Jesus uh, did. And of course, since that is really true, the, the best explanation for that would be that he is the son of God. You know, if, 
if Jesus isn't the son of God, how do you explain a peasant, the son of a carpenter, born in a stable, raised in an utterly insignificant village, Never in his entire lifetime did he even leave the, the region that he was born into. Like it says here, he never himself wrote anything. How has he become the singular figure in the history of the world? Unless what Mark says about him is true. He is the son of God. That's why uh, in every nation, Jesus is worshiped. That's why people turn from idolatry. That's why people turn from false religion. That's why people turn from atheism. That's why people turn from materialism. All these things, they, they turn to Jesus. It doesn't make sense if he's just this, this carpenter from Nazareth, but it does make sense if he is indeed who the gospels claim that he is, the son of God. Thirdly and finally, the kingdom. Jesus said, as he began to preach, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So the time is fulfilled. This was the time. God, God set a time to bring the Savior into the world. You know, Cheryl and I were having this conversation. Um, we're both, she's, her personal study, she's reading through um, the Old Testament right where I happen to be teaching right now. So I'm teaching in First Kings. She's reading in First Kings. So we're talking about the events and David and Saul and Solomon and all of this. And, and I was telling her, you know, it always strikes me as I'm reading the Old Testament, like, man, this already happened. <laughs> this, this happened. God was there with those people and he was, you know, raising up these men and he was working through the prophets, Elijah and Elisha and all of this. It's already happened in history. And... On the one hand, that all stopped. If you just look at it, if you expect it to go along uh, those lines. So like we talked about earlier, in Judaism, I said at the end of the, New, at the intertestamental period, it had been 400 years of silence. Well, guess what? For Jews today, it has been 2,000 years of silence. Not because God isn't speaking, but because they, they've been looking in the wrong place. But God is still speaking. And God is working. And God's work basically took a turn into the, the Gentile world through the coming of Jesus into the world. The time is fulfilled. God had set an appointed time to send the Savior into the world. And he came at that very time. But then Jesus said this. He, so he goes out. Now he's the one preaching. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand, or NIV says the kingdom of God is near. In other words, the kingdom of God is, it's, it's here now. It's here for the entry. That's what Jesus began to proclaim. You can enter the kingdom. Now, again, the audience, the original audience, they had a completely different idea of the kingdom of God. So what Jesus, one of the things he's doing is he's showing them the program is different than you think. The kingdom of God is here right now. It's, it's right here available to you. You can enter it. It's not going to be what you think. At the time, of course, what they thought is that the kingdom is going to be manifest by the king coming, conquering the Romans, destroying them, and establishing the Davidic throne and exalting us, the people of God, to a place of prominence. That's what they thought. 
Jesus comes and he says, no, the kingdom of God is, is near. It's here now. It's different. You can enter it now. But then he tells us how to enter it. And what does he say? He says, repent and believe the good news. So the message that Jesus went out was the kingdom of God is here. It's available. It's, it's, uh, the doors are open for entry. You can come in. How do we get in? Repent and believe the gospel. Now, this is still true today. And of course, back then, they, 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 you know, some did. We need to understand this about the kingdom. Somebody put it like this, and, and this is the way we should understand it. The kingdom is already, but not yet. So the kingdom of God is here now. Actually, if you're a believer in Jesus today, that means you're under the lordship. He's your king. You're in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. You're, you're living in that realm if you're a believer. But we all know that although that is already the case, it's not yet what it's ultimately going to be, right? So we know that when the kingdom comes in its fullness, that righteousness, that peace, that love, that joy will be universal. But that's not here yet. But it's on its way. But we get to, anybody can experience it personally, and then we end up experiencing it collectively together with one another because we all become citizens of that kingdom. So again, how does that happen? Well, it happens by repenting and believing. Now, repenting and believing. The word repent simply means this, to change your mind. That's the meaning of the word. And the idea is that your, your thinking, or let's just even illustrate it by your direction. You're, you're going in the wrong direction. You're going in the direction away from God. Isaiah described it like this in the 53rd chapter. He, he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his or her own way. The Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So that's, that's, that's our natural condition. We're like sheep going astray. We turned everyone to his own way. We're going the wrong way. So to repent means we stop and we turn. Now, some people make a big distinction between repenting and believing, but I think they're really, they go hand in hand. You see, if you repent, you repent, you stop and you turn because you believe that this message is true. And likewise, if you believe that this message is true, you're not going to keep going in the wrong direction. You're going to stop and say, no, I, I need to turn. So to repent and believe, Jesus said, that is what we must do. Repent and believe, that brings us into the kingdom. That's how we get into the kingdom. And, and let, me, let me just say this. The kingdom is, is open and available, like I said, it's, it's for us today. Now, now, many have entered into it, but some of you perhaps have not. But this is a different world. It's a, you know, it's, it's a world within a world, in a sense. You know, we live in the material world, but we become the citizens of, of heaven, the kingdom, which is an immaterial world, but, but it's very real. And, and we have a different experience we see differently. We hear what people don't hear. We hear the voice of God. God speaks to us 
All of these amazing kinds of things. And, and I want to emphasize this. The Bible says what happens when we believe in Jesus is we are literally transferred from the kingdom of darkness and we are brought into the kingdom of light. We come out of darkness and we come into the realm of the light. And that's a, that is a, a massive transformation. And I want to emphasize that because, you know, there's a lot of confusion today about, you know, what it is to, to even be a Christian. And, and, you know, in some cases today, being a Christian has been reduced to just being religious or being a good person or being a, a moral and social conservative and those kinds of things. Listen, that's not it. That's not it. It's something way more radical than that. And meeting Jesus is something that is so radical. Coming to Jesus is something that is so radical that you are literally extracted from the kingdom of darkness and you're put into a new kingdom. And listen, if you're in the kingdom of God, you're going to know that. You're going to know it. You're going to have different experience. And even though that kingdom of darkness is still there, and even though you're still in, connected to it, obviously, in certain ways, that's not going to be the, pr the predominant thing in your life. That's not going to be the thing that primarily concerns you. That's not going to be the thing you're taken up with. You're going to be taken up with, the, no, I'm part of this kingdom over here. And because you're part of this kingdom, you're going to live like the people in the kingdom live. We live under the authority of the king, under the authority of Jesus, the king. And so, Jesus said it, the kingdom of God is near. It's here, it's available. And, and what was true then for those original hearers of the message, it is absolutely true for us today as well. And Jesus is inviting people today into that kingdom. How do we get there? Repent and believe. Wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, just stop and turn to the Lord. That's what it means. To turn to him. Just turn to him just like you are. Uh, he doesn't tell you, you know, get your act cleaned up, come back and see me later when you got it together. And I, I'm, I want you to see this because sometimes I think we get the wrong idea with repent. Because some people have the idea that repentance is just that. Well, I got to go repent and then I'll believe as soon as I repent. No, they are simultaneous. They happen at the same time. You don't have to go anywhere or do anything because it's a matter of your heart. You just have to stop going the wrong direction, which is away from God and just simply in your heart say, Lord, I turn to you. I believe this good news. I believe, even though this is, this is probably the hardest thing any of us will ever have to um, face and admit, it must be faced and admitted, I, I believe I am more sinful, I believe I am more wicked, I believe I am more broken than I can even understand. That's a hard thing to say, because man, that just goes against all of our pride. We don't want to think we're that bad, Right? Well, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not that sinful. I mean, wicked, wow, that's pretty strong. Maybe I, yeah, a couple times I've been wicked. Broken, gee, that sounds like, you know, I don't know if I'm in that category. No, you are, and I am too. This is where we're at. This is reality. And until we face it, the good news, it, 
doesn't affect us. But the moment we face it, the moment we say, that is true about me, the moment we say, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, guess what? That is repenting and believing. That is, that is what it means to come to Christ. And so for some today, that's where you're at and that's what needs to happen. For others of us, we are uh, already in the kingdom. But my question is this as we close, are we living in the righteousness, peace, love, and joy of the kingdom? Are we living in the righteousness? You know, we're looking at things that Jesus did because we're supposed to live a certain way. As Christians, we, we have a different lifestyle that we are supposed to be living. And anyone that tells you, well, no, you can be a Christian, you can live just like you always lived, they're not telling you the truth. That's not, that's not true. What, what is true is that there is a righteousness that God requires us to live according to. And the great thing is that he gives us the power to do it. So there is the righteousness and there is the, the love and there is the joy and there is the peace. And so are you living in that? Are you living under the authority of the king? That's what we've been called into. And let's not sell ourselves short of, of anything that God has for us. Let, let's not miss the, the wonder and the glory and the, the beauty and just the absolutely <laughs> amazingness of the fact that, man, I can live in the kingdom of God today simply by repenting and believing. So Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to do that. Lord, you came you extended the invitation to enter into the kingdom. And Lord, that invitation, we believe it still is extended today. And you're still standing with outstretched arms today, waiting for those who would turn to you to receive the forgiveness of sins, to receive the life, to be delivered from the, the brokenness of our own wrong choices and the twistedness of the the sinful nature in us to be liberated from sin and from the, the captivity of the evil one, the oppressor. And Lord, from the stupidity of our own foolish thinking, thank you, Lord, that you offer us a way out. And I pray that if there's any with us today, that have yet to repent and believe, oh Lord, help them to do that. And for those of us that have, Lord, help us to live in the glory of the already, but not yet, the glory of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.